To ship, of course. Hey all, welcome to episode six of the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Engine on Twitter, and it's SoberBuildEngineer.com. And who's with me tonight? Uh, this is Yusuf at Build Scientist on Twitter and uh, BuildScientist.com. This is e- EJ Ceramella uh, on Twitter. I'm E Ceramella. And this is Sasha Bates uh, for TheBrattyRedhead.com, and I am Sasha underscore D on Twitter. EJ, welcome back. Thank you. Glad it's, to be back. It's been a couple episodes. You were training for a big bike ride, correct? Yep. Knocked out a 150-mile ride, followed up by a 120-mile ride uh, subsequent nice. weekend. Nice. Very nice. I didn't know they had that much space over on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to have you back with us, talking about uh, DevOps, release engineering, and everything in between. So... Tonight uh, is a first for the ship show. We have uh, our first guest here uh, on the show, and we're really super excited about that. In a few moments, we'll be talking with Mark Burgess, the creator of CF Engine, the software, and the CTO of CF Engine, the company. And he's going to be talking with us about his thoughts on configuration management and uh, the numerous configuration management platforms and tools out there, including CF Engine. Um, but first, we'll do, as we always do, the news and views segment. Sasha, you brought something to our attention about related to the last episode topic about there being such a thing as too much automation something about copyright robots run amok right so uh the hugo awards were last week it's kind of exciting apparently they had lots of people tuning in uh online for the live stream and then what happened is uh, there's a vendor called ustream that was actually streaming the live stream and they use another third-party provider called um mobile and mobile basically is like copyright infringement monitoring. So everything is monitored and automated in a way so that if mobile detects copyright infringement, and I say that in air quotes, it, it acts immediately to shut down the stream. Now, we don't actually know who configures that, whether it's one of those levels of configuration where you could say, you know, send a warning, shut things down, drop a nuke, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, but what happened is that Basically, the copyright robots kicked in, shut down the live stream, and then they couldn't get it started again. So uh, Ustream couldn't get their stuff started, and when people asked about it, uh, they said that it was because mobile had they couldn't uh, they couldn't manage the mobile stuff. And then I believe that it, it did devolve into a big finger pointing uh, setup. But, but yeah, it was basically uh, generally I'm, I'm not a fan of of not automating things, but uh, having yourself some kind of uh, manual override never hurts. So that was pretty interesting. We know that it's interesting because this isn't the first time this has come up. I remember there being a lot of hoopla about the same thing happening to NASA on with on YouTube with the Mars Curiosity videos. Some conglomerate, media conglomerate, asserted copyright with Google's automated YouTube uh, video scrubbing stuff. And so it seems like you know this is actually a pretty common problem. And in the case, in NASA's case, I think the video was down for like a couple of days right when all of the curiosity stuff was at its height and people couldn't watch the video. Oh, I think, you know, the other thing that was interesting about this whole uh, Hugh Snafu is that they also mentioned that there's a, a, a free platform and a live platform for the Ustream streaming and the Hugos were using the free platform. So I'm also going to posit that you get what you pay for. Uh, you know, we don't know for sure, but I'm guessing. Yeah, could be. That there might be a little service involved. Yeah, but I'm definitely all for uh, for the override uh, switch, and it seems like somebody didn't think of that one through very well. 
Interesting. Strange literalness of machines defeats us all. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's funny. We keep joking about. Uh, we made reference to Skynet in episode five, and it's like, well, it's it's copyright Skynet <laughs> or something like that. With the other article we ran into uh, this week was Twitter and Etsy doing an engineer exchange. It, it turns out that I guess Twitter and Etsy are are sending staff engineers to each other's places to kind of learn how they do things and share ideas and sort of a boot camp style uh, initiation. This is uh, an interesting idea. Have you guys ever heard of, of you know, any uh, companies doing this before? No, this sounds completely brand new to me, but I've always thought about it. You know, over the, what, decade and a half I've been working in this industry, uh, you go on interviews, even for jobs that you decide you don't want, and you get to talk to them about what they're doing, what they're interested in. And I feel like during those interviews, you get a little taste of what the other companies are doing. And sometimes I wish that you could do this sort of student exchange that they did with their employees. I think this is a brilliant idea because uh, you you want to you want to you always want to try and do something else. And sometimes at the company that you're at, you have barriers or whatever. And without quitting, just getting a chance to sample, I think is awesome. So, so here's kind of what I'm wondering: What happens if after you know? You, I'm not saying this is going to happen with Twitter and Etsy, but let's say you get exchanged to the other company and then you figure out that you don't want to work at the original company that you were working at. Do they have agreements that say, you know, we're collaborating and you can't steal our employees? Or That would be a, that would be a pretty easy, like, anti-poaching clause yeah. to add to this contract, you know? Well, it's more than that, right? I mean, because depending on the, the depth of the boot camp, right, Really, you're showing kind of like a company jewels in terms of IP and, you know, I mean, are they showing, is it is it more like a cultural exchange in terms of like, how do you do DevOps and, you know, how do you, what processes do you use for large scale websites and stuff like that? Or is it is it like, hey, go do a deploy on Twitter and to do that, you need to actually have access to all the source code and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a, a, a lot of Everybody interesting... Everybody has access to all the source code anyway, don't they? For the most, well, okay, not for Etsy, but I mean... I'm sorry. I didn't mean to derail what you were saying. I actually have something to say about that, though. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, so something, and I actually got this from somebody else's blog post, and I can't remember who it was anymore, but uh, it was a a blog post on why I won't sign your NDA to talk about an idea with you. And and the point was that your idea isn't what's going to make you a million bucks in this world of startups and things. It's how you implement that idea. And uh, source code isn't really going to make a big difference on, it's not going to be full of secrets, right, On, on, on... Stuff that I don't think that there's any intellectual property in most of these places that that's not what you'd be. There's nothing to steal, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, the NDA is more than that, though, too, right? So, it, the company I'm currently at, there's a project that we're working on that is ultra stealth mode, right? And the reason why it's ultra stealth mode is because when we go to market, some of our partners will be their competition, right? And so that's why you would have them sign a, an NDA, too, sure. right? It's not just about pilfering an idea it's about disrupting the marketplace and your current client roster you know? sure well and the, the other thing about that too is though sasha to your point you and i both know that the, the important part is the execution not necessarily the idea but you talk to a lawyer or you get the company lawyers involved and all sorts of interesting weirdness happens i actually am impressed that they sort of got this past all of the hoops to even do it i, I mean i agree with you guys i think it's a great idea um but it, it would be interesting to know some of the uh, the finer details around all of the, the parts of the agreement back and forth. 
Well, they're both still fairly small, aren't they? I mean, relatively speaking, compared to large retail corporations and things. And I'm sure that if, if Twitter is making some kind of a twitsy someplace, they're not going to let any of the Etsy engineers see it, right? But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in general, I don't think there's anything to steal that, you know, Etsy's already, you know, implementing super fantastic. Uh, well, I just want to let uh, you guys and all of our listeners know I'm happy to do engineering exchanges. You can come sit on my couch with uh, <laughs> the best of town uh, during the day while I work. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about DevOps over and we'll have crack a beer or something. Well, we've actually talked about that at my current client, too, actually. But internally, because a lot of that, I mean, if you want to devolve into culture talk, uh, the best way to break down barriers is to rotate your, your developers and your engineers through groups so that everybody knows what everybody else is working on and uh, it doesn't have any, any false assumptions about what's going on. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, that's news and views for this week. Uh, next up, Mark Burgess on The Ship Show. Ship Show. Uh, I'm Paul Reed, and I'm here today uh, with Mark Burgess, the creator of CF Engine and also the CTO of CF Engine, and Mark DeVisser, the uh, Chief Marketing Officer of CF Engine. Welcome to the Ship Show, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit, uh, start off a little bit with your background as a, a physicist and in academia is, I think, widely known. But recently you left, uh, you were a professor for some time, and you left to do CF Engine full-time. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what prompted that decision? That's a good one. So I've uh, been a teacher almost ever since I finished my college education. I've been in the university system for, for that long. And I've been through the teaching of the subjects, some of the research on the subjects, um, and been involved in international projects with the research of it. And at some point you've done everything that can be done in that space and reached the top and had to stop. And that was bothering me. So I decided that I needed something else to do. And I, I kind of looked back at my uh, sorry career in, in academia and saw that the one thing that people really were grateful for or happy with that I had done over the years was CF Engine. And my, my own interest in the project had gone up and down depending on different uh, phases of what I was interested in and so on. But, but it keep coming back to that because that's the thing which has been so useful to so many people over the years. So really I just decided I had this opportunity to, uh, to uh, develop CF Engine further and clearly there was a need for this going forward, it needed to survive me and uh, wanted to build up an organization, a company around that to, to support it. So that's, that's what prompted me to, to make that change. And so when exactly did you make that change? How long have you been with working on CF Engine full time? I suppose I was thinking about it already in 2007 but we formed the company first in 2008 in Oslo in Norway, and then the American uh, company the year after that. All right. And so what has been your major focus uh, at CF Engine over the last... I mean, there's been a ton of development in this space, uh, both on the, on the open source side and, and certainly on the CF Engine side. I was recently reading about CF Engine 3 uh, as kind of the, the, the new flagship, and that was a rewrite. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, we started the company with CF Engine 3. Mm-hmm. Having seen it, you know, because the history goes back a long way, and 
And through the years, we've learned many things. Right back at the beginning, we didn't really know how to do configuration management. The learning of that, the science of it developed over the years. And then, at the point of starting the company, we put in the time, I'd done my research on that subject, been around the world and seen everybody's different takes on it, and learned a lot of lessons. And out there, you know, there were, we believe, millions of users of CF Engine 2 more or less happy with, with it the way it was, but there, was, there were clearly things that wanted to be changed to move, to, move ahead to the next generation of, of configuration management. And so the research had been done and I started by rewriting CF Engine 3, which was a complete rewrite, borrowing, of course, a lot of heritage from the earlier versions, but, but it was uh, a stronger framework, a better language, uh, a cleaner implementation. It took advantage of patterns because I mean, the idea that I came up with was that there were two things really that, that configuration boils down to. One is the ability to keep promises about what it is that you're trying to achieve, a desired state we call it. So to be able to desire a state and then keep the promise that that state will be maintained over time. And the other thing is to be able to exploit the compression of information because the sheer number of things in configuration management is, is just very, very big. And if you can't model that and take advantages of patterns that reduce that total amount of information, then it just becomes an intractable problem. So the ability to compress the information, exploit the patterns that are available using structures of uh, containers and regular expressions and all these different techniques, that was kind of the key to re-implementing 203 in a faster, better, lighter, super-duper framework. So you, you mentioned this, uh, promises, and, and typically when your name and CF Engine comes up, promise theory is kind of right in that same sentence. Let's talk a little bit about promise theory. Like, what, what is that exactly? And I'm amazed actually how much people have picked up on this because I never really promoted the promise theory as part of CF Engine 3. It just, it just became part of the story by itself. And I think one reason is that people were just interested in the idea that there was actually some science behind these things that we could allude to when, when creating these kind of projects. Because there are a lot of ways you could do these things, and many of them are ad hoc, but if there's some kind of optimum way, it's nice to know what that might be. And that was really my question in, in the, the work that went into CF Engine. Promissory was one part of it. The first part was convergence, the idea of convergence, which is the idea that no matter what stage you start out in, you will end up in the right state. And that is not guaranteed by the traditional way of imperative programming where you have to start in a known state and then you provide a number of recipe steps to get to the desired state. So to, to free, the con or free the configuration management from knowing that initial state, you don't necessarily know the mess you start out in, but knowing where you want to get to, that's a, a key thing in, in getting towards uh, a predictable system from, from whatever mess you start out in. And then the second part, the, the promise theory, came about really looking for a model of the distributed part of the problem, which is that this is a problem covering many machines all over the place in the network that may or may not have any direct relationship with one another. They have no necessarily central controller or even a single person involved in designing their, their purpose. But you still want to work together in some kind of common system. The other, the other key thing, of course, is that CF Engine had this model which was not really there was, there was no model to describe how CF Engine worked in computer science. The classic approach to computer science is you decide what you want and then you try to force the system to do your bidding. 
that works really badly in a distributed system because you don't have necessarily A, the communication access, or B, the access rights, the, the permissions to do that. And so with a lot of these systems, it's like talking to, to, to the crowd through a loud hailer, saying, do this, do that, and maybe they do, maybe they don't. But really it's up to them and, and what they promise to comply with if they are willing to comply and, and motivated and they know everything they need to do to comply, they will do so. And the idea of promissory came out of that uncertainty in the distribution of systems that you cannot really believe that everything you say will become the way it is because the world doesn't work like that. But if the, if the machines have basically promised to follow certain patterns or rules or whatever, then at least you have some indication of being able to expect something about their behavior. And so it captures the uncertainties that are inherent in a, a distributed system. And it also captures the idea of encoding certain promises, formalized behavioral attributes about the system, which is exactly what configuration management really is about. So the, the idea of a promise, kind of, it's, it's, a, it's somewhat a technical view of a promise, but it still fits very nicely with our common intuition of what a promise is. And it's easy to understand, and it captures all of the right things about it. And then the nice thing was that we were able to formalize the notion of promise in syntactic terms, and then that gave us the answer for what the language should look like, and it made the language very, very simple. In CF Engine previously, we've kind of designed, not so much designed the language, just borrowed bits of linguistic alleged uh, <laughs> domain from different sources and stuck them together, hoping it would appeal to people. Uh, and so and it got a bit out of control. But then to have a common model that fits everything allowed us to rewrite the language and redesign it in a very, very simple way. So just a couple of structures that you need to learn and know everything. So that actually leads me to an interesting point that we wanted to ask you about. There seems to be kind of, when you talk about configuration management systems, kind of two <coughs> sets of ideas about it. And so on the one side, you have systems that use a domain-specific language like CF Engine, but you also have systems like Chef and Puppet that are Ruby or Ansible that's Python, and you describe what you need to do in the actual programming language itself. What's your take on on that, and why did CF Engine go with, with the DSL as opposed to the language it was implemented in? Or No, how did we end up in domain-specific language? Well, the time that I started, and this was back in 93 or so, that you really had Perl was kind of the standard approach to doing sysadmin tasks, that and, and shell. And oh, the good old shell script. The good old shell script, yeah. The trouble with shell scripts, of course, is that they, well, back then in 93, you had many flavors of Unix, many more flavors of Unix than you have today. IRIX, HBUX, Ultrix, the BSDs, the... SCO. Yes, you know, all of those, you know, dozens of these things, Apollo even. And they were much more different from one another than they are today. And so all of the shell commands that you would write shell scripts with had different options and they were in different locations and different behaviors. And coded scripting generalized infrastructure around that was a nightmare. So the first purpose of CF Engine was to have this common lingua franca that every possible Unix could understand with the same language. And that actually took out all of the exception logic from your, from your scripts because every script read like, if this is sum three and the date is passed, the sum, such and such and it's attached to this level, and this is the chemistry department, then if such and such is true and there's a full moon, then this path, unless that path doesn't exist, in which case it's this path, and you may have compiled this by yourself, so you have to add these flags. 
And it was just a nightmare of exception logic. You'd see a lot of if sun include the sun thing, but in that if it's sun forward, it'd do this, and then it's Solaris do this, and right, yeah, so yeah, that was... And, and the whole code, you just see the, the wrapping, you wouldn't see the intention. So yeah, the purpose right. of CF Engine was to extract from all that mess the intention, what it was you were trying to achieve, the desired state, and strip out as much of the wrapping and absorb that into the domain-specific language. Well, I think it was possible in the 2000s when, <coughs> when Muppet started and later Chef, was that you had more, more developed languages that could, uh, and of course simpler systems, it was mostly Linux-based then, um, you had more evolved languages that could capture more of those things and hide the details. So it was easier to write imperative code that would do uh, system-specific things with a lot of libraries that you get for free because the whole IT space was more involved at that point also. But I stuck with the domain-specific language because I think it still suffers from the same problem that the, the exception logic will eventually have to come back in there somehow. And at some point, it's the, the quality of the model that you create is more important than the process of programming that you go through to achieve that. And you want to be focused on the outcome and not on the process by which you, do, you achieve the outcome. So that, that's why I stuck with the, the domain-specific language. You were mentioning all the different kind of operating systems and, and that problem. Do you think operating systems are a hindrance to configuration management? And in sort of a, a broader context, I guess, or a broader way to ask that question is, in some sense, the way computers just are is kind of antithetical to configuration management sometimes. I mean, so, so what's your kind of take on that? I mean, do operating systems in particular or things in general make it hard to do configuration management? On purpose? <laughs> you cannot do configuration management and not love operating systems. It's kind of the, the bread and butter world in which you exist, yeah? So it's like saying, um, you're a gardener, do you hate flowers or something? <laughs> They're all different and, and, and have wonderful attributes. Some of them have thorns and some of them are small mice, but basically you have to deal with all of them if you want to have a successful garden. <laughs> it's the same with operating systems. So. You could be described as the father of configuration management, oh, really. I've been the father, the grandfather, the great-grandfather. I'm getting older, older and older every interview that well, I have. Well, we'll call you the father. <laughs> and so the question is, like, how do you feel about all of these other uh, frameworks popping up? Well, they're part of the space, yeah, and they're part of the discussion, the dialogue. And, and we are an open-source project, one of the earliest open-source projects, actually, when it comes down to it. And eventually the, the environment in which you work changes and the discussion changes and people have different ideas. Some of those ideas are blind alleys and some of them turn into new wonderful things. And I think uh, we've seen that. We've seen blind alleys and we've seen projects that have become quite successful like Putnam Chef. They've become rather successful also as standalone projects. And they've brought some ideas to the table. We don't necessarily agree with all of those ideas, but they've caught on, and, and so they bring the discussion to a new, new level. And anything that encourages the discussion, I think, is a valuable thing, because that's how you learn. Well, so, you know, that's an interesting question. I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about the open source aspect. This question may seem a little absurd, uh, but we got asked this. Is CF Engine open source? It's as open source as anything else out there these days, in my view, which is to say that there is a, a core of technology that you can use completely free. It's, it's GPL3. Mm -hmm. 
can compile it yourself, it's not that hard. You can even contribute to it if that floats your boat. And most of the functionality to make changes to the system, the core concepts are in that open source version. Then you have, over the last few years, seen a massive commercialization of open source, mm -hmm. uh, putting services around it and additional features that are really only interesting to enterprise business users, such as uh, reporting and knowledge management and a whole bunch of uh, things related to enterprise scenarios. And those are not 100% open source, those are additional commercial add-ons. And I believe the same, exactly the same model applies to all of the other projects mm -hmm. in the area. And the, the nice thing about that is that you have the ability to support an organization that is completely specialized on making this uh, project successful and building. And it becomes a focal point. One of the things I noticed in the early years of CF Engine was that it's often, unless you have a lot of spare time on your hands and you're a very extrovert person, and I'm not a terribly extrovert person, uh, I basically barricade myself into my home every night with automatic weapons and <laughs> don't talk to anyone for weeks on end. But, um, you, you have the, uh, what do they call it, the geek cave? You, you yeah, certainly so have the geek cave with your... So I'm not the most extrovert person. Unless you have that sort of uh, extrovert nature, grooming the community or building a community around it with a strong focus becomes a challenge and it doesn't happen necessarily by itself. And so you need, you need the help of uh, a group of people around there who are willing to do this and who sort of believe in that. Well, so that actually was my next question because the reason we got asked that question about the confusion about open source is you do see Chef and Puppet, and we were talking about this earlier, the community aspect that's like a big, it's just kind of part of those projects. And so what is CF Engine doing to sort of keep their community vitality up and keep, do that sort of development? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so this is Mark Fisser, right? Um, the, I, I think what, what has evolved is that in, in the whole cycle of configuration management, you, you have the point at which you deploy new infrastructure, and your goal is to take something that has just been developed and get it out into production as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that focus involves development developers, whereas at the end of, of that cycle, where people maintain systems, make sure that they are compliant with policies and that they maintain performance, security, all, all those sort of additional qualities that you expect on your infrastructure is more the domain of the system administrator. And our community is very much in the system administrator space. And, and, and they are more different than you might expect. And so we have a vibrant community. We run on 10 million servers together and millions of people use this every day and take it to work and so forth. And they're active participants in our community. The emergence of the on the front end of this cycle, which often equates to DevOps, is has become very vital. And, and so clearly, the, the, the traditional community of CMS is more on the system administrator side. It doesn't say that there is no community that is right. about it. Do you think your community doesn't consider themselves DevOps people? And, and the reason I ask that is because the more I'm in this space, the more I kind of get I kind of have to use the word DevOps for people to kind of nod and know what I'm talking about, but I don't necessarily consider myself necessarily a DevOps person, even though, the, and we, we talked about this on one of the previous podcasts, even though we're doing the same things, and it's really just the use of that word. Yeah, I, I Do you think, think that's... There's, there's clearly two different places that people arrive from, probably end up in more or less the same space, right? So if you're a developer and you have things that you, you, you now deploy your new systems multiple times a day, and so you have to start thinking operations, otherwise your thing won't make it. Mm -hmm. And then 
In the old days, you would not do that. You would hand it off to QA and hand it off to all operations, and you know, you hear a couple of months later whether it worked or not. The world has changed for that for, for developers and made them operations aware. And in a similar way, operations now now that they instantiate new infrastructure on the fly and, and turn it up and turn it down and they they do it to accommodate developments. So, so they arrive at the same space and you will I mean I'm obviously keeping track of this. More and more our world is a DevOps world too. And even though the typical customers that we have are large enterprises that have very diverse infrastructure and all web-based infrastructure, but, you know, more and more they are putting their services online and even internally operate on the web model, they arrive in the same place. And so, so more, we, we encounter Shepard product a lot more this year than we did last year. And, and so forth. So, yeah. And so, and you, you mentioned the, uh, tonight you're doing uh, one of the first CF Engine user groups. A user group in, 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 the, Bay Bay in the Bay Area. Yeah. And, and so are you, are there other user groups that you're going to be, are yeah, there other ways? We're working worldwide now to, to make sure that these things happen. Great, right. So yeah, that's another way to get yeah. involved with that community. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Come back to this um, DevOps question for a second. This really came on to me last year at the Lisa conference in Boston, I think it was, yeah. where Ben Rocker had this fantastic talk about DevOps for the system administrator. So, you know, the Usenix conference is the Lisa conference, is the hardcore home of the system administrator. It's kind of the focal group of this. There's been that for the past 20 years or so. And Tom Lancelli, uh, my friend, saw the importance of this, the rise of DevOps as, as a new form of operations or system administration, bringing a different kind of culture into the, into the what would you call it, uh, the craft, if you like. And so that that was an important change uh, that system administrators needed to, to learn about and, and get something out of. I think you often need this sort of generational shift to shake up some old communities. And certainly the sysadmin community had become a little bit sleepy and needed this, this shake up. And there was a generation shift around the web, I believe, when you know, web companies, web 2.0 companies emerged and a lot of new young talent came into the field and basically had to learn things from scratch because they didn't have the long experience of the also traditional graybeard, sysadmin, Unix guy. They had to learn a lot of stuff uh, anew and a lot of those people were trained as computer programmers in college and so they came at it from the development side and saw it from that point of view. And of course the other thing which Ben Rockwood pointed out very nicely was that it's also a more modern sort of commerce, commercial view of the world, that the value creation comes through the development process in the world of the web. It is that business value creation that comes out of uh, uh, development, which is so important for system administrators to grab hold of and, and uh, promote, lift on the backs of their systems, on the infrastructure that they create, they make that happen. So they become part of the value chain of a company rather than being just these basement uh, guys who, who are but rarely seen. <laughs> there, is, there is this observation about system administrators that they're mostly saying no, right? They, mm -hmm. that, that's what they do best. And that used to be okay and that that's important reasons to be careful and, and moderate change, but that doesn't fly anymore. So we, we think of them as system engineers. You know, they're, they're 
creating IT operations infrastructure. System and enablers. Was, yeah, they, they <laughs> should, and they should look at it that way. And, and at most of our customer sites, we see exactly that, where, where they become not part of the problem, part of the solution. And how, how do you want to step ahead of your competition? It's by having more infrastructure that allows people to, to deliver services faster and more tailored and, and all those kind of things. So you both changing the part. So, you know, you, this is actually to this point, and you may have already sort of answered this, but, you know, one of the big questions is, is because you have so much experience in this area, I was going to ask, with the trend towards agile and the trend towards distributed version control, where it's it's not a centralized repository, cloud, uh, there's kind of, to your, what you were saying, more developer empowerment about, you know, let's focus on what the developers are doing and maybe shift the focus away from the systems are always 100% stable or what, you know whatever it is it's focusing to what they're doing how do you think that impacts the CM and the, and the market space? I think it's already had a huge impact through the cloud as um, I mean if you think of the cloud as a tool which basically grew up to support web services and it kind of literally did that in the Amazon space right what you were able to do was build a machine in a very simple way, in a very easy way, in a very fast way, to a rough specification within a few minutes rather than having to order something from a you know, catalog and get it delivered in a couple of weeks and then spend, pass it from department to department to get it set up and installed and then finally be online in a, in a week or a month or something. You could make this happen in a few minutes. That changed, I think, the way people began to think about systems because it gave them a tool to do things quickly. And when you can do things quickly, you tend to plan less and think, you think less in a long-term capacity, more about how can I just get stuff done. So what the cloud has tended to do is to increase the focus on building new systems. Of course, it's important on the web because everybody was growing so fast and so, so they wanted to build new systems. So they got used to building systems and then the answer is, what if something goes wrong? Well, you just throw it away and build a new one. So you become the disposable razor of uh, a configuration management with, with a cloud solution, enabling you to fix problems just by rebuilding from scratch. And, and we kind of make fun of that at CF Engine because uh, we, we say, I mean, this is to change the light bulb quite a lot because you would tear down the whole building and then rebuild a new building with the light bulb working. Right. Which is how you rebuild fixed problems, the smallest problem in a server. And that thing is, kind of thing is encouraged by the cloud. Because of virtualization. Because you of can virtualization, take a, yeah. exactly. And the only way you can get away with that is if you are you know, hiding behind the shield of a load balancer, which masks that destruction of your building. And if you're working on your building and the building actually gets torn down, you can't actually use it while it's being rebuilt. So and you may have had important papers in that building. You may indeed have had important papers in that building. We're thinking about for stateless machines. Yeah. And, yes. and so the minute you do capture state or data or things like that, then it becomes a lot less easy. Well, and a lot of, a lot of, it seems like a lot of organizations have learned that lesson the hard way, where they went with a stateless design, but state leads in to these machines. And you don't notice it until, you know, maybe... Right. And I think we or an Amazon outage yeah. where one part of your infrastructure is in one availability zone and it goes down and even though your web servers are in this other one, you don't, that's when you notice it. I, I think what, what, what we're seeing is that as you look at these things, these commission critical systems for companies and at that point in time, 
the knowledge of developers needed as well as security experts, as well as people that understand performance, that understand databases. The developer loves to say, I, I made a legally valid SQL statement and it just killed the performance, right? And, and, and so because they don't know what the database does. And, and in many ways, with this specialization and this, this fast pull through of development cycles, a lot of that knowledge is not part of that cycle, right? So you need to create a configuration system that, that can catch that ball, right? And that's not the role of the system infrastructure engineer is Right. So become an enabler. Yeah. I think it, I mean, we've seen over the past year or so maybe an increase in the interest of maintaining systems rather than just rebuilding systems. Yeah. And there's been a large focus on build for a long time. But I think I, it's true that I see more people being interested in the mission critical aspects of, of systems and keeping them running, looking more, taking a more long term view. Than was true in the couple years Right. So, so you know, it makes us all very bullish because there's a whole lot of work to be done to make this. Well, I have a friend who always likes to talk about, you know, cloud now is the mainframe of yesteryear, except, I mean, it had the same model from the usage perspective. It's off in some room and I don't look at it. It's still a real machine, but, you know, I don't have to worry about it. And I think, and would you agree, we're starting to realize the costs to tearing down a machine and rebuilding it. Right. There's, there's a cost there, it's not free. Right. Whereas when you start playing with Amazon and a lot of these services, it's great, right? You spin up a machine really quickly, but then when you have production around it, that cost is not zero. And it's not, it can not, sometimes it can be more than even a small cost. Right? And this is a delicate issue of overheads, which is one reason why we focus a lot on making CFN super lightweight, um, because we want that system to be running at all times, like every five minutes maintaining the state and, and, and um, ensuring that the thing is on course to, to, to deliver what it's supposed to do in the business value chain. But we hear on, of people using some of the other products, for instance, who will build a machine, because that's very easy, get started building a machine, and then they switch off the configuration system because it's, it takes it's too set. much resources. Mm -hmm. So it's, because it you know, fires up this heavyweight uh, process going in the background, they're not getting their work done. It's taking business value away from the infrastructure because it's consuming a lot of resources, especially in the virtual world where you mm -hmm. pay, for those, pay for those resources. But with CF Engine, our, our goal is to keep that system running at all times so that you are literally not getting into a bad state in the first place. It's the proactive approach to, to maintenance. And that was always the case with CF Engine, but I think, again, this focus within the cloud, the build focus has detracted a little bit from that story, and now it's gradually seeping back in that you need this continuous uh, repair system. Well, certainly a different use case, but it seems like it's just as valid as it always there, was. There, yeah, there's another element to it. If you focus on the build, then, then you have a conglomerate of tools in many cases, right? So, so you have some scripting tool that allows you to instantiate machines, and then another scripting that populates efficient configuration, and then another tool that track of that. And so it is still a iterative process that, that's imperative, right? I'm, I'm going to now deploy 25 new VMs. And it's so happened that I already had 25, but I don't know that because that system doesn't tell me. I just deployed um, 25 more. If my goal was to have 25 running, then what CFN does is it checks. And then if there's 50 running, it takes 25 down. And if there's 20 running, it adds 5. It's, that happens convergently. Right, so it happens by, by the configuration management, not by a set of tools that I have in addition to this. The cost effect of that is pretty substantial because I think 
Amazon, it's, it's known that, that the, the smallest percentage of their revenues are made from machines that are running, not for any particular reason, but just nobody thought of turning them off. And, and so these, these are the kind of things that configuration management has to start taking into account. It's, it's a business. Right? Yeah. Now, and we, we actually talked about this a little earlier, uh, you know, we were talking about cloud again and talking about how if you do the math, you could say, you know, in eight years we're going to be, let's say approximately eight years we're going to be graduating from college students that are going into high school now, that for them there is no physical machine. And you mentioned it's like we won't know how to add a hard drive because that's just not the frame, the frame of consciousness when it comes to this sort of thing. What impact do you think that's going to have? The world will be virtual. Yeah. So all of these machines and boxes and well, network devices and what have you will just become invisible. Like we use the expression that will disappear into the walls. You know, this famous uh, quote by Mark Weiser of Xerox that the, the technologies that become mature are the ones that disappear from view. They disappear into the walls and go out of sight. We take them for granted and that's going to happen with IT infrastructure as it becomes more prevalent, more ubiquitous. And today we have this strange situation where network devices and servers are managed by completely different systems, and I might say mm -hmm. completely different cultures. Have certainly different industries. organizations. I'm sorry? Certainly different organizations as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, I mean you have uh, network administrators as a title, and system administrators as a different title, and even database administrators as a different title, and all of these things are different. They somehow belong together. And Eventually, virtualization will make them just one set of APIs and give me a machine. Don't care about the network. We'll put them in a virtual container or we'll put a wall around them. Or you'll be able to say these generic things about infrastructure from the design point of view. You sketch out a design and then you just have this implemented by making some statements, hopefully declarative ones, hopefully in CF Engine. And, and the system will build, construct, and maintain itself into that state until such a time as you decide to change it. But all of that will be accessible through some kind of front end. A model, basically. Someone used the phrase a few years ago, model-based model engineering, right? infrastructure engineering. I like that term because it, you know, a design is a model. And once you have a model, you have a reference thing to check against. You have your intention, your desired state, and, and you can test the current state of your system against your intention. Am I matching what I, what I originally intended to do? And that is actually a process of sort of rehumanizing the IT workspace. It's, it's making human beings' intentions and goals paramount in, in the management of the system rather than being buried under a heap of uh, tasks that they have to do. Which, which then detract from the, the purpose and the intention and maybe take on a life of their own. So we like to think that this model-oriented focus, which becomes so much easier through the virtualization, uh, enables that rehumanization of the space and makes human beings' role in this much more important again. Because then we're using people's expertise and not just treating them as slaves. It sort of connects also to the thing that you raised earlier about a specific language that the event is based upon. In the end, it becomes can they express their desired state, their goals in the language that you give them? And we think that C event is better at that than anything else out there. And you know, we, we are encouraged by things like we now not just manage servers like we traditionally did, we use we manage mobile devices, we manage storage infrastructure, network infrastructure and all that. So, so and that can be done from one infrastructure and 
among modes in which you express your intended state. So, it's pretty powerful. So that, that's actually a really good point because I wanted to talk a little bit about pragmatic configuration management stuff. And, and so I was going to ask, uh, you made reference, I think, in, in one of your blog posts, or I heard you uh, speaking to, I, I hear even you said uh, an Apollo machine that CF Engine ran on, I think, in your grad school days. So I wanted to ask, like, and you mentioned just now mobile devices, like, what's kind of the most exotic, weird machine that CF Engine has run on and had to manage? Depends who you are, I guess. What, what <laughs> you consider exotic? What is that called? The, 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 the Raspberry Pi? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty cool, right? And, and so, Steve Engine was running on, on it. Yeah. yeah. We have those in our offices. Um, we have uh, our guy at the CF Engine office, Marcia, uh, Marcia, uh, who, who does these uh, amazing ports to CF Engine on different devices. He's done the Raspberry Pi. We had one. Last year, at least, we had this ARM development board similar to the Raspberry Pi actually with a touchscreen device to illustrate the concept of self-healing, which was a very uh, popular thing at the conference. It's the kind of thing everyone wanted to go there and touch. And we've done, I think, some Juniper um, systems and unfortunately you have to hack those because you don't have access. But we want to get on those devices because that's uh, the way to manage them. But the interesting part about that is that they move on very lightweight devices, which yeah. I think is the future. We, we talk about millions, billions of devices of today. It will be totally into the future, and it will be lying on right away. And, and many of them absolutely do not work economically anymore for anybody to ever revisit them. They, like, like you say, they go in the ground, they have to stay there. And to, if you have management infrastructure that can control these things and update them and then change functionality and support, lightweightness, if that's a word, needs to be paramount, right? And, right? and so these things need to respond by themselves autonomously. Right. And that's that whole architecture of It's funny, it's like in Chris the French philosophy, the more things change, the more they stay the same. In the beginning of CF Engine, the design was very much to be robust against network failure because the Ethernet was, was pretty poor. And you had a lot of UUCP, PPP links that were up and down. Exactly. And, yeah. Today, it's the wireless. Yeah. It's the mobile technology, yep. but the same problem remains. Yeah. yeah. So the technology's changed, but the, the, the basic the, the problems problem remain the same. Yeah, yeah. But that wire infrastructure is part of commercial enterprise infrastructure that needs to operate, right? So people invest in that. And you can, you can imagine CF Engine being a tool that would enable uh, infrastructure to develop in, for example, these third world countries that have relatively poor infrastructure between all the very complex infrastructure with geographical, topographical challenges and still be able to function robustly. For example, banks. There are banks in India, there are banks in China, there are banks in Africa. They still need to work, they still need to function and be reliable and secure. But they don't always have reliable and secure communications infrastructure because mm -hmm. that is hard. So the ability to continue to work and continue to assure the state of the system even offline becomes actually very important. Another use case is shipping. And a lot of shipping in Norway, of course, and we have the Navy. Uh, different kind of ship show. Different kind of ship show. <laughs> different um, 
a couple of different countries' navies. We have uh, using CF engine, and when you're in port, you maybe have a couple of megabits links, but out at sea, you maybe have a couple of kilobits. When you go under the sea, you lose everything. So you, you really cannot rely on a very fast network to, to manage infrastructure. I'm smirking because I just had this image of a nuclear sub coming up for Microsoft Patch Tuesday yeah. to get its, <laughs> get its yeah, updates. Yeah, yeah. So, so there are a lot of CM tools today, and you still see often very mature organizations, just their CM story is a mess. Their continuous integration systems are different from each other, which are different from their official build systems. And it's and you know again, despite the fact that we have these tools uh, and we have a tons of tools that, that are trying to address this problem, why do you think that is? Because there is so much of a need for for it, and people want to get in the game and, and try to contribute to the problem. It's exciting. It's. Um, but I mean, from from the organization side, why do you think that's so hard for so many organizations? to seemingly to solve, even with the glut of tools to choose from? So, so for one thing it is that there, there's latency, there, there's just inertia, and, and so on, and, and particularly in system administration, right? Because many people that wrote the scripts that, and the duct tape that holds that together today are no longer with the companies that, mm -hmm. and they work, and um, why touch them if, if, if they still They work, work until they don't. Yeah, and then, and so, the, this is a great example of that is how people started writing screen scrapers because they never touch, they have to touch the systems anymore, but somewhere on the green screen comes up the output of that system and they write screen scraper to funnel it into, which is the lowest integration possibly, uh, you know. And so these systems will probably stick around forever and, and it's our belief that in, in corporate America at least is far more than 50% of, of the infrastructure is just run still write these old scripts and still script or fix manually uh, most of the work. So, so it, it's just inertia there. So if you were sharing an elevator with, you know, a CTO of some Fortune 100 company, and, and you knew that this was a problem they struggled with, like, what, but maybe that individual the doesn't know. Like, of an organization like that? Yeah, well, what I mean... What you would ask him is, when you had a release of, of some new functionality that you, that you asked for, how long did it take? Did you have to roll back because it was really bad when it happened? Or did your customers complain that their servers were now? He probably doesn't know what exactly causes it, but these are the kind of things that he sees happening to him. Yeah. And a lot of times, too, I find in those conversations, there's visibility into the fact that it happened, but there's not visibility into the fact that it's connected to this problem. Right. It's connected to the configuration management problem. Yeah, I mean, there. Yeah, there was a great example um, a couple of weeks ago with the Royal Bank of Scotland, where their systems, online banking systems, went down. Oh, I think I read about this, yeah. And, and so it was a configuration error, but they couldn't discover for two weeks how to bring the system back online. Right. ATMs were down, as I remember. Yeah. Well, the ATMs and the online banking. Right. And, and it, was, it was purely configuration error. It's so complicated to them and, and so untransparent to them that they could not figure out how, how to solve it. Which is, by that time, the, the management knew what was going on and that it was related to this. And this is part of the story that uh, came about in CF Engine 3 that there would be a focus on knowledge knowledge management. I had this uh, saying that when you've divided the labor between what humans, the human thinking and the, the machine implementation, what's left for humans to do is to manage the knowledge of it. And like Mark said, people today who have inherited these legacy systems basically live in fear of their systems. They, 
they're frightened of their systems and making a change. They don't feel like they, they master them, they're not in control of them, they're not even partners with them. They are subservient to them, working on their behalf, fixing it, things, it, to hope that they're, they'll stay together. It's kind of like the rabid dog that you're feeding and sort of caring yeah. for, but yes. you're afraid it's going to bite you all the exactly. time and it's always in your face. But to manage that problem all the time, to, to, to know the system, you need to develop a relationship with it. Just as just take take your machines out to dinner. <laughs> if, if only that would work. But no, seriously, I mean this very seriously. That to to, form, to know something, to truly know something, you have to form a relationship with it. Whether it's reading a book, you have to get to know the book, learn the book, to to master some knowledge, you have to practice it and interact with it and repeat it again and again. It's an interactive thing. And if unless you have a system that reports facts about itself and accepts input from you and takes direction and you can grow together to converge together towards the desired state, then you never maintain that state of knowledge that keeps you in control. And you will always live in fear of the system rather than actually feeling comfortable living, you know, how we learn to live with the world. Yeah, the largest customer that we have describes this this process of very iterative changes to configurations. So they deploy something new and they test what the system does and they they listen to all the corners of, of their infrastructure which is global and there's almost 250,000 people there and, and, and they they deploy things and then after the feedback becomes clear and, and no performance issues raised and then they take the next step and they listen again and it's that sort of iterative approach that needs to be possible with the system because that the relationship they need to understand this stuff before they can move to the next step. And it's a very different thing than having this centralized image that you just push out right. and then hope for the best. Right. It's a question of scale, right? So in the olden days, if we could call it that, the, the, the Greybeard Sysad man, he had that relationship with his one Unix server. Or and nobody else touched it. Because yeah. no one else touched it and it was one to one, or one to two, or one to a small number. But today, just to scale up the mechanics of a, an intimate relationship with the system, you need tools to to manage that knowledge. You need a therapist to have yeah. a relationship with you. That's what we do, actually. Yeah. So you actually, uh, my next question, you kind of alluded to this a little bit. You were saying, you know, this kind of chuckle about it, but this, this, these ideas are really important and the way you frame it is really important. Michael DeHaan uh, is the author or creator of Ansible and he recently wrote a blog post that it, in some sense was very critical of a lot of these ideas, uh, and he hit the ending quote of his post was, configuration management should not be rocket surgery. How would you respond to that general idea that this, this is too, you're making it too hard, this is simple stuff, and why does it have to be this hard? Totally agree. Hmm? Totally agree. I, I think our whole mission is the simple drag and drop if we can. <laughs> because what has to go on behind the scenes to make that happen is, is a different story. So we had a conversation uh, a week ago with someone who, who was very bullish about a certain push-based tool, a kind of a network shell where you can type in a command and you get reproduced on 100, 100 machines. And he thought that this was the best way to manage systems. Uh, and after he'd enthused about this for a few minutes, I asked him, how many machines do you manage? And it was like, well, it might be 20 or something like this. And, and that's the the key, those simple technologies, the idea of typing in your, your wishes and pushing it out to a bunch of systems, you may get away with that with around 20 machines and not have too many problems. But now it's 20,000 machines, 
which is not uncommon today. What happens then if you make a mistake or do something wrong? Then you're in serious, serious trouble. And you can't imagine differentiating all those different departments within 20,000 machines that have different requirements and tailoring each of those individual experiences and needs and requirements to specific tasks from a single user typing on command line interface. It's just not doable. You need to have a much more sophisticated model to make that happen. There was a great talk by Rich Hickey on the net about easy versus simple a while ago, which I really appreciated because he's a smart guy. And he makes the point that what appears to be easy is not necessarily the same as what is actually simple. The simple means something that has a few, only a few things to change. But something might be uh, quite easy to do, but lead to all kinds of complex things underneath the hood, which are quite uncontrollable. So the challenge is to find this balance between what is actually simple, because that will bring robustness and maintainability, predictability, and to make that simple thing also easy. That is the, the, the core of the challenge that we face, and Marxism. We work really hard on finding that balance. Well, it sounds like I made reference to this last week. I was reading Charles Perrault's uh, Normal Accidents, which is all about complex system theory. And, the, and you know, he talks about the ones that we often think about, nuclear power plants and chemical plants and airplanes. But it seems, you know, bank infrastructure, mm -hmm. uh, SCADA systems that are controlling power plants that are software, right? It's what you said. You know, it could be easy, but there's complexity under the, that's, that's kind of hidden. Yeah, these outages are a great example. Like in India, you saw how hard it was for them to figure out what exactly cost it to eat. That happened in America on the East Coast, what, five years ago, four years ago, something like that? Some systems have certain response to certain incidents that are not predictable and therefore. So that's so it should be really easy, I agree, but it should not be oversimplified so that you can never figure these things out anymore because they become oversimplified. And that's the key point, not to oversimplify things. And, and it's often counterintuitive because our intuition is based on small numbers of things that we perceive around us in our daily lives. And then we try to scale it up in our minds. Clearly, it's just bigger, but it doesn't change. But sometimes the sheer scale of things, emergent effects will happen. Which it's like a game of telephone, right? As the scale becomes bigger and the message travels further, things happen that you don't expect, right? All right, well, uh, this is our, our first uh, interview here on The Ship Show, and I wanted to try something. Listeners who are familiar with Inside the Actor Studio knows that James Lipton asks a set of questions based on, I guess, uh, the Proust questionnaire that he asks all the actors. And so we came up with our own version here for The Ship Show, and we're going to give it a try, and you've graciously said you wouldn't take the questionnaire. So, <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to start. So PC or Mac? PC. VI or Emacs? Emacs. What's your favorite programming language? C. What's your favorite program or tool? My favorite program or tool? My favorite tool is the fountain pen, <laughs> which allows me to write neatly in my, in my beautiful paper book. Okay. And what tool, program, or language would you be happy if it had never been invented? <laughs> uh, then we would probably have to say Ruby since all of our competition is based on <laughs> <laughs> Okay. What's a, what's a piece of code or the piece of code that you're most proud of? CFN. What's your favorite curse word? I can't remember. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, well, I used to be a physicist and uh, I wouldn't mind doing that again or working in the space industry. 
And if heaven exists, what famous figure would you like to talk to when you arrive at the pearly gates, and what would you talk about? Oh, I've been hard on these questions. That's the last one, so. Um, famous figure would I like to talk to? So many fascinating people. I'd maybe like to talk to um, Richard Feynman. Uh, as a fellow physicist, and uh, in some ways, a lot of I see a lot of parallels between promise theory and his rendering of quantum field theory, which was also one of my subjects in the past. And I actually knew one of his uh, his co-Nobel Prize winners, Julian Schwinger, so I know him knew him quite well. But Richard Feynman, I would have enjoyed talking to. All right. Well, thank you, Mark Burgess, Mark Devisser. Thanks for joining us here on the Ship Show. Appreciate it. Welcome back to the Ship Show. Uh, so for our final segment tonight, we're doing a, a review of the book. The Facts and Fallacies of Software Engineering by Robert L. Glass. It's actually uh, a, a book that's been around for a while. And in it, it basically, uh, it's, it's, there, it's funny, There's a, in the intro segment, he talks about his original name for the book was The 55 Facts and Fallacies of Software Engineering. It was very alliterative. Robert L. Glass is a, a software engineering researcher. Uh, and he's been in, in research and also in uh, industry for, uh, I think, like 15 years. Um, and he basically, the book is is a quick read. It's it's broken down quite well. I, I did a lot of reading on public transit because you can read, like, one fact is maybe five pages, so it's great for, like, a commute, right? But basically, he talks about different facts and fallacies of software engineering. What I really appreciated about the book is that for each fact or fallacy, he actually gives the argument behind it. So he explains what, you know, he has the, the, the short version of the factor fallacy. So one of them, for instance, is the best programmers are up to 28 times better than the worst programmers. So he'll state the fact very succinctly. He'll explain what he means by that. He'll actually talk about the controversy. So he will report what other people say or, or the other side of it. And then he will list all of the research that exists on that topic. Some of it is self-referential to studies he's done. Some of the facts uh, and fallacies reference studies in, in each other. Um, so there's a little bit of reusing of data. But I really appreciated the fact that somebody has taken the time to look at all the things, a lot, you know, the, a lot of the things that we assume are true or a lot of the things that we run the industry by that actually aren't true. And there's research on this, but we just keep telling ourselves that it is true. He breaks down the book into management and management of software, the software lifecycle, education. He talks about 55 facts of the teaching of software. And I think the main upshot of the book, if you have a chance to read it, is he talks a lot about hype, which especially I think is something we, we have to be careful of, especially with Agile and DevOps. Not to say that those two topics are hyped, but oftentimes they can be by people who are trying to sell you something. And that's a theme that comes through in his book, whether it be tools for, for like development tools or uh, process culture changes or even a reputation. He talks about the fact that you need to really divest the hype from 
and from the data. And a lot of times when you actually do that, you find out the people hyping a particular position is because they're trying to sell you something. So I really appreciated the fact that it's actually kind of pretty low key. Have any of you other guys, by the way, I think this book, if you take software engineering in college, like it's a quick read and it's, it's a lot of good historical data that's actually backed up with facts. And I really like that. So I'd recommend it for a curriculum. But if you haven't had a chance to read it, you should definitely grab it. It, There's a Kindle edition, so it's great for that, too. I I had a question, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, well, have have any of you guys heard of this book? No, I've I've never heard of it, but I was kind of curious. I mean, how how different is this from the Mythical Man Month? Is is it similar to it, or, I mean... So... so, so Man Month is a set of essays that kind of talk about Brooks' experiences developing at IBM, right? And actually, he references both Brooks and the, the points that he comes to. So, for instance, fact number three is adding people to a late project makes it later. And so, so there, are, there are some things that are actually kind of referential of that. But he also taught a lot of things we don't often talk about. So, for instance, he t- has a whole section on facts and fallacies about estimation, um, he has a whole section on code reuse and complexity. So really, I was actually looking for some of my favorite facts. He's got a fact about COBOL, which shows the book is a bit, a little bit dated. But the actual things that he's talking about COBOL aren't. So you could actually apply one of the facts that he talks about a COBOL is it's like the best and the worst business programming language ever. And one of the things he talks about is it's very verbose language because it's got a lot of keywords. And you hear this... Uh, at times about Java in that it takes a lot of code to do something somewhat simple. There's a lot of just boilerplate code that you've had to write. And that was more so about the original Java. I think they've cleaned that up a little bit. But the point is, is that the lesson there, even though it's COBOL, you can actually extrapolate to other things. He talks actually a lot about design. One of my other, uh, let me see if I can find it real quick. One of my favorite, here we go. Uh, Reviews are both technical and sociological and both factors must be accommodated for. So he actually, there's, there's a bit of that, too, as well, talking about. Uh, he has a huge section on quality, too, which is interesting. He actually challenges the definition of what most of us would think of quality. And you can grab the book to read what he, he, he talks about that. But it's, it's insightful, even if you don't agree with it. And again, he, he gives fair airtime to the other side for each of these. So you can see what people were saying about it and find, you know, maybe you'll agree with that, but at least he presents the studies he was looking at. And there was, he actually references a couple of things I've been meaning to read. Apparently NASA has software engineering guidelines uh, for the software they develop. So looking at that, uh, I actually meant to go pull that off the shelves and I actually found it. It's a, it's an old scanned PDF you can get off the net uh, from the 80, 80s or mid-90s that NASA put together software engineering guidelines. And it's just interesting to see what they say. There's a lot of stuff like that where he references other papers that you might actually find interesting if you uh, feel like digging them up. So, so yes, The Facts and Fallacies of Software Engineering by Robert Glass. Check it out. So that's our show for this evening. We hope you enjoyed the, the interview with Mark. We actually have more interviews as we speak, so we'll have those coming up in the next few episodes. And also, uh, we found the Dear Abby DevOps segment to be popular, so we'll be posting that hashtag and uh, look out for it on Twitter. Send, submit us your questions, and we'll discuss them on the show. Uh, and, of course, if you have any feedback about any of the other things we talk about on the show, feel free to tweet us. That's the best way to get our attention. So, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. Uh, from San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Minneapolis, Boston. this is Sasha signing off. From Boston, this is EJ signing off. Have a great couple of weeks. It's a